Welcome to Indefinable Magic. Memories and thoughts inspired by a TV legend who says run a lot. Written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. This week's episode, Target Practice. I don't think I've ever used the word capacious in anything, except when I've told people how important the Doctor Who target novelizations were and that they taught me words I'd otherwise not have known. But that's no bad thing. I know there are words that I wouldn't know now as a wheezing, groaning adult if I hadn't encountered them when I was a child with a pleasant open face. I'd go into bookshops to see if they had any Doctor Who novels. We had some, and before I could read, I'd looked at the pictures and studied the covers and blurbs as best I could. I remember an incident involving Grandpa. Now, that's Dad's dad, so this is early, as they basically washed their hands of us after Dad left, and I have only a few snatched memories of him being around. He was gone by the time I was four. But Grandpa came back from the shops with, I think, three books, one for each of the older kids. I have two brothers and a sister who would have been in proper reading age then. I was not. Curse of Peladon, I think, was one, and Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. One other. Maybe Doctor Who and the Cybermen. Not sure. It didn't matter who had what. They'd go on one of the big sprawling bookshelves in the house when they were done. They weren't personal property. Doctor Who was a thing everybody did. That's why, sometime later... That part of the shelf was one I'd always go to, sorting the books into order, sometimes by author. Terence Dix might well have been the first name I learned of someone I didn't know. It took a while to put two and two together and work out that my uncle Terence, albeit the more traditional spelling, and Terence Dix had the same name. And then there was Malcolm Hulk, whose name was reminiscent of the incredible green man whose adventure on TV in slow-motion rage always ended with that melancholic coda of his human alter-ego, Dr David Banner. Don't make me angry, Mr McGee. You won't like me when I'm angry. Hitchhiking to a sad piano, tinkling its tears. And Brian Hales was another target writer. I thought it was Hay Lees for years, but he was the ice warrior guy. I knew that. Sometimes I ordered the books by which coloured spines fitted well together, or by doctor, anything to be involved, and putting them into some kind of order seemed like something I could do, cataloguing the chaos. Doctor Who fans, for a programme about scattergun adventure, do like putting things in order, rationalising things. Unlike some, though, I'm not so strict as to worry about whether the one I'm doing is correct. There is no correct. Or if there is, my correct might not be yours. Hell, I know one madman whose DVDs are in release order on his shelf. I know! And if you ever bump into Ed Stradling, don't tell him I told you that. But I couldn't read the books, whatever order they were in. The first I managed to get through was the last chapter of Doctor Who and the Cave Monsters. I flicked through that a lot, 
because I was a dinosaur lover, and reptilophiles were well catered for with the cave monsters, because not only was there a Tyrannosaurus Rex on the cover, but a fantastic picture of a giant one dwelling in the caves was somewhere within the pages of the book, towering over the Doctor in a dripping catacomb. My goodness, it made the show look like the most amazing thing ever. There were other pictures in there too. One of a chap called Major Barker, looking like he was being strangled to death by his own sling. Looks a bit surreal for my tastes. Another of a woman looking like she was having a terrible headache as the doctor was dragged away by some lizard men. But then came the last chapter. The lie. Only two pages long. Well, I could try to read that. Not a massively long tract of prose to get through. And so I did. I read the ending. One of the best most unusual and downbeat endings of any Doctor Who story ever. And I ruined it for myself because its brevity meant that it seemed like a good place to start. It wasn't a good place to start. And yet, I was on my way, spoiling myself as I did so. I used to love looking at the pictures, though, handily captioned with words which helped with my comprehension. The writing reflected the images, of course. And what images? Cybermen striking two men to death on the moon's surface, and themselves perishing as they were sucked skyward in the story's climax. These were the striking inks of Alan Willow inside the black-spined Doctor Who and the Cybermen, the blackness of the spine suggesting the inky darkness of space which shrouded the atmospheric story of lunar lockdown. Then there was the bald-headed Torbis being towered over by the terrifying beast Agador in the Curse of Peladon. The pictures in Doctor Who and the Daleks, I know it's not actually called that, but that's what we thought it was, were much more abstract. In fact, the whole book seemed different, partly because it was written from Ian's perspective in the first person, and our particular copy at home had undergone some sort of tragedy. The first 30 pages or so had been shredded somehow the bookworm, my brother said, which seemed plausible. I knew there was a thing called a bookworm, and this book looked like something had been at it. I assumed the bookworm was like woodworm, and never thought to question it. What it did mean was that I never got to read the alternative beginning the novel gives the entire series until I managed to get another copy some years later. That was almost as shocking as Ian smoking a cigarette. Anyway, I probably managed to get my head around the sheer oddness and impossibility to reconcile this particular novel with the continuity of the rest before I actually worked out there was no such thing as the bookworm. I still don't know what happened to those pages, if I'm honest. Anyway, Doctor Who and the Daleks took me several goes. I finally realised I'd turned a corner with my reading of it. I finally realised I had turned a corner with my reading when I managed to get through it. An object lesson in perseverance and the satisfaction that can be derived from achieving something that initially seemed difficult. The first book I read in full was Doctor Who and the Web of Fear. It had a fantastic cover. The Doctor's face enlarged on a spider's web backdrop a yeti shooting lasers from its eyes, and a tough-looking soldier ensnared in its binding light. A good mix. Soldier, gun, laser, doctor, monster, and Chris Achilleos' artwork, which deserves a podcast of its own, 
and will doubtless get one. But he's a vital part of Doctor Who history, and as much an essential component of the visual furniture of the show as anything that happened on screen. And I read The Web of Fear, and I followed it pretty well. I didn't get the reference to Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart later being the Brigadier. I discovered that later, and wow, what a delight it was to do so. I thought all the soldiers were very brave, and it seemed so chilling and grim as they were picked off one by one. And having ruined the ending of one story all by myself, it was very good of my brother to pitch in and help to destroy another one for me. With that in mind, uh, spoiler alert guys, I told him as I neared the end of the book how exciting it was and who was left alive, the cowardly Private Evans, the even more cowardly and definitely sneaky reporter Harold Chorley, Staff Sergeant Arnold, doughty and dependable, I probably thought he was erstwhile, but we've covered that in another edition. And an all-round good egg was Sergeant Arnold. Ah, said my brother, well, I'm not going to say anything, but you know how there's a traitor, and you know how you said Sergeant Arnold was a good guy. And he gave me an enigmatic look of the kind that can only be dispensed by a wise old sage aged, ooh, at least eleven, I should think. And there it was, a spoiler before the term had been coined. And so the story's big revelation was not the surprise that it could have been, by virtue of the fact that it wasn't a surprise at all. Still, the ending of the story did teach me a valuable lesson. In the book, Sergeant Arnold's death, as a result of the Doctor and Jamie tampering with the great intelligence attempt to drain the Doctor's brain, has an extra magic element. If the Doctor had been able to enact his plan, he may have been able to save Arnold, postulating that the intelligence merely possessed him when it could, and the rest of the time he was the honest and dependable soldier they all knew and loved, and was oblivious to the work the intelligence was doing on him. In the TV version, though, the suggestion is that Arnold was dead all this time, the first soldier to go missing, and that everything he had done since was just his dead body animated by the intelligence. I hate that ending, especially when in the TV version Jack Woolgar invests the character with gruff stoicism, a pragmatic soldier of the type who exemplifies the ordinary, hard-working British NCO. Don't tell me that was all an act. Well, if it was, if the TV version is canon, which it is, I always count the TV version above everything else. And yet, for me, whenever I consider the Web of Fear, I discount that bit because I don't like it, and I pretend to myself that my favoured version, the target version, is true. So yeah, the TV version is always canon, except that bit that is inconvenient to me. Pretending something didn't happen is much easier than pretending something did. Malcolm Hulk was so good at putting flesh on the bones of his characters in his novelizations that often one's favourite bits of the books were disappointingly conspicuous by their absence in the TV versions, which, for the likes of me, were watched after reading the book. The character of Colonel Trenchard in the book of The Sea Devils is a rather sad patriot. Hulk always had the greatest sympathy for his characters, even when painting in their flaws. As Trenchard decides to redeem himself, 
having been terribly duped by the master exploiting his weakness, his national pride, he puffs himself up and gallantly decides to face the marauding sea lizards and shoot as many down as he can before they overcome his prison. Only in his final moments does he realise that he hasn't slipped the safety catch off his pistol. It'd be funny if it weren't so sad. A little bittersweet coda to this foolish man's patriotic fervour. And then, in another moment of lovely humanity, when his old friend whom he has betrayed, Captain Hart, notices this, he slips the safety catch off in order to protect Trenchard's honour. As far as the outside world is concerned, Trenchard went out fighting. These moments help the plot not one jot, but they are among the most memorable in the book, as is the beginning with poor escapees from a sinking ship murdered as the bottom is burnt out of their lifeboat, and where the brave crew called Mason and Scouse and Sparks get wiped out on the SS Pevensey Castle by an incursion of deadly sea creatures. But like Colonel Trenchard's safety catch, they never existed on screen and have been invented purely for the target readers. Although, to be fair, to its TV version, the low-budget version of the SS Pevensey Castle scene, a radar operator, an SOS, a green hand and a terrified scream, are moments of great economy that provide a memorable opening for a production that can't sink a boat. Novelised moments like that are as real to me as the televised episodes, and although, as I say, the broadcast versions are the real versions. Those bits from the target books are as memorable and important a part of my journey through Doctor Who as my encounters with the Time Lord on screen. I have to confess, though, that it wasn't an easy journey. Reading the books that were a bit too advanced, the Holt books, for all their imaginative repackaging of the material, were a bit of a chore, and I frequently skipped the first two chapters, especially if it was chatter between the Doctor and the Companion although the Sea Devils did teach me what Mayday, Mayday in French, meant, and I was very impressed. But what it meant was that when I revisited the books a few years later, I probably appreciated more the chapters from the perspective of Morka the Silurian watching a conversation between Silver Buttons, a policeman, and Frock Coat, the doctor, and Fur Under Nose, the brigadier, literally showing the scene through alien eyes, to indicate that how we see things isn't necessarily the same and illustrating different thought patterns and perspectives, although it's heartening to know that prehistoric, clothesless, lizard, biped Morka still knows what a frock coat is. Then there's simple heavy hinks with his collection of comic books in The Green Death, Major Barker, whose slip-up referred to in the teleprey of the Silurian story becomes a full-blown flashback to an incident in which he shoots an unarmed man, or the brilliant chapter in The Doomsday Weapon, which outlines the IMC life of appalling space capitalist Captain Dent. Flesh on the bones of the characters. I still don't have a complete collection of the Target books. I know, I will return my fan card immediately. I really have a nostalgic pull towards those early novels, but by the time that Peter Davison ones, with their grotty photo covers and prose versions of stories I had seen on the telly, came out, well, it all seemed to appeal a bit less. There was excitement when the McCoy era stories got a bit of backstory and extrapolation, but I wasn't in a massive hurry to get them. My pocket money was better spent getting things 
that told me what went on behind the scenes than stories I knew what happened in. The fact was now as important as the fiction. My fuzzy brain now wants to address that, especially as I'm in a house I doubt I will move from, I have some bookshelves where the targets, which have spent a lot of their more recent life in boxes as various wives and girlfriends have suggested they didn't really need to be out when people came to visit. I have an office now, though, a corner which can be forever target. So I can fill those gaps, one of which, frustratingly, is the wheel in space, which now, thanks to only a small number of copies being printed, goes for an absolute bomb on which I once held in my hands in a bookshop but didn't bother to get. I'd started to get my hands on videos of the old episodes and the TV programme. Well, it's the most important thing, isn't it? My nose obviously let me down that time. In fact, I remember being furious with Donald Cotton for deviating so far from the TV stories and then totally messing with the Romans because even though I'd loved the bits Hulk had augmented his stories with, that was only because... I didn't know they weren't in the TV series. But what Cotton had done had not replicated exactly what happened on screen, and this, especially when dealing with sacred screeds and missing episodes, was tantamount to cultural vandalism. Now, of course, his novel of the Mythmakers in particular stands out as one of the best of the whole target range, and one that has some gloriously self-indulgent jokes and a cheeky style totally lost on my humourless younger self, who found such notions as invention and extrapolation and wit to be unnecessarily gauche when a glorified transcript would have been more the ticket. The TV version of The Mythmakers is funny, but not nearly as funny as the book, which revels in its comically flawed characters, from the bored Menelaus to the heroically dim and cowardly Paris. So what I needed as a kid was very different from what I want now. The things that annoyed the younger me are the very things that recommend these novels to me now. And notice I've barely mentioned Terence Dix, the most important target novelist of them all. His books were definitely the most accessible and definitely the most faithful, so his were the ones I cracked the earliest and which laid the foundations for me being able to revisit those I'd tried and failed at before. Dix was my gateway drug into the harder stuff peddled by Hulk and Cotton and especially Ian Martyr with his blown-off heads and splitting skin and people saying bastard. Soft Dix led to hard Hulk. I doubt there's a Doctor Who fan of my generation whose journey through Doctor Who and indeed through the English language was not charted by Dix. And yet, bar his early attempts, where he had more time and did more than his fair share of additions and extrapolations, Day of the Daleks, the Auton Invasion, I have no need to revisit them. The Dix books are cherished events, but they offer me nothing I need now because my needs have changed. I can imagine rereading The Mythmakers, probably The Sea Devils and The Cave Monsters, and maybe even Doctor Who and The Cybermen to remind me of those heady days when Controller Hobson had the character trait that he was a Yorkshireman. But The Robots of Death, that slimmest of slim volumes that only helps to make the brilliance of the TV version even more of a pleasant surprise, Underworld, Planet of Giants, no tar. I haven't read any Henry James so I think I owe it to myself to leave those Dick's books as ornaments in my office, totems to those pioneering days of word mastery. So why keep them at all? Well, because they represent a cherished part of my childhood, 
an exciting treasure trove of goodies that filled those interminable gaps through seasons, which could enliven a trip to town or which could eat up the book tokens I'd been given for Christmas. These often gathered into piles and because my birthday was so close could accumulate into a hefty sum which could get me more than a decent haul. So yes, there's a small place in my office and there's a place in my heart for those old Target books and that place, well that's very big, huge in fact, capacious. You have been listening to this week's edition of Indefinable Magic, Target Practice. I'm grateful to you for so doing, and my name is Toby Haydock. I wrote and performed it. The music for Indefinable Magic was specially composed by Dominic Glynn. target books of the Web of Fear, the Cave Monsters, Colony in Space, and all the others mentioned at various online and specialist outlets, except the Will in Space. You'll have to look a bit harder for that one and fork out an absolute bomb. If you enjoy and would like to support these podcasts, you can do so on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. It has different tiers and can unlock bonus or early material, but generally it's a pay-what-you-can slash want model. If you don't want to do the monthly commitment thing, you can just buy me a one-off coffee whenever you like at Kofi, which is Kofi, K-O-F-I, Kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. And please plug and rate them wherever you can. It just helps. Otherwise, I wouldn't have to record these awful pleading things at the end that everyone, including me, hates. Anyway, that's enough of that. I hope I've made your day a little better or more interesting than it was half an hour ago. Until next time I attempt to do that, stay safe and well and happy times and places to you and yours. Goodbye. Coming soon from Toby Haydoke's Time Travels. Oh, there's so much out there. Doctor Who Archives, Matrix Data Bank, the complete history of time travel. And it's all wonderful. But you can't really take it all on the bus, can you? Or digest it when you're doing the gardening. Oh, look out, your Varga plant needs a prune. And there's still stuff to be discovered. I have, however, dug up a copy of Tobias and the Angel. Myths to be busted and observations to be made, all in one handy audio package. Newman seems certain that the show is going ahead, but this is not a view held by everybody. Because frankly, as far as Doctor Who's concerned, you can't have too much information. Well, actually you can, because it's a new podcast from me, Toby Haydock, going through Doctor Who one episode, uh, that's episode, not story in disgusting detail. <laughs> I've just had an email from one of the Coal Hill school kids. 
In fact, I found all of them bar one. And so for once, the when. Filming has been put back to July the 20th. The what. If the master sounds a strangely appropriate program title from a man who abandoned Doctor Who and went over to the other side, then you wouldn't be wrong. And the who. Nora Alice Frick, to give her her full name, was, like Sidney Newman, one of the other creators of Doctor Who, born in Canada. Of Doctor Who are gathered into one broadcast, which promises to tell you things you didn't even know you didn't know, in an accessible and informative manner, accompanied by a gorgeous original soundtrack, especially commissioned from the award-winning Wayne Shepherd, aka Gary Lestrange. Too much information, and, not for the faint-hearted, its sister podcast, far too much information for the stuff I couldn't fit in. Coming soon to Toby Haydoke's time travels in all the usual podcast places. Subscribe to my mailing list at www.tobyhaydoke.com for early access and for exclusive content. Toby Haydoke's time travels. Four very different Doctor Who podcasts, all coming soon. Please subscribe to the official Toby Haydoke YouTube channel.